All right. So, open your Bibles. Uh, you can open your Bibles to 2 Kings if you want to do, go that route. If you don't want to go that route, on the, your vert, on your packet, starting on page 3, are all the verses that are going to be listed in uh, your, your packet for tonight. And so, this is going to take just a, a second just to remind us of where we've been over the past, uh, it's been a couple of weeks since we've met together, and so um, it's, it's worth it to take a moment to just remember what's going on. Remember, we're in, um, just, we're, we're in sort of a, a rapid succession heading very quickly downhill into the time period when the southern kingdom of Judah, remember that's Judah and Benjamin really together, are hauled off into captivity in Babylon. We know that's coming. And the prophets have even warned all of the children of Israel, it's really Babylon that you have to look out for. And you see that the warnings are not necessarily heeded because there is, at the same time, there is a threat of Babylon, you know, on the horizon. Uh, there's a very real and imminent threat of Assyria, who is the world dominant power at the time. And Assyria, you'll remember, has already come in to the northern kingdom and hauled them off. And so the, all of that, the, the fear of Assyria being the world power, having already come in and hauled off our, kin, our kinfolks and taken them into slavery, and you, so you've got the fear from the prophets saying, Babylon is the one you really got to watch out for. But at the same time, there's also a very real threat of, you know, of Assyria out on the horizon. So it, it's, a, it's a very complicated world that you live in. You, you don't want to just, because you're trusting the word of the prophet, then just kind of give Assyria everything either. You know, they, they're also not proven that they're not to be trusted with their dominance and, and their power. And so you, you end up getting, in combination to the political uh, stuff that's going on in the world, you also have a succession of pretty wicked kings in the southern kingdom. And that doesn't help anything, because wicked kings only produce wickedness in the life of the congregation, as it were, or the country. So those, the, they're leading the people into wickedness, and they're going to continue to do that. And so you get kind of this rapid succession. And we, we saw that, that with Manasseh. Remember, Manasseh was super wicked, uh, sacrificed his own kids, and he was immediately dealt with and hauled off into captivity in Babylon, actually. And there he reformed his ways. And he, the Lord brought him out of captivity and restored him to the throne. Because remember, he is of the line of David after all. And so there, there's nothing that's, there's no threat to the line of David because God has already promised that David's line will, will never leave the throne. Well, that brings in another wrinkle of complexity into the whole story because how is he going to preserve the line of David when there's not going to be anyone on the throne, right? J Judah's going to be no more. So how, how is the line of David going to be maintained when the people are hauled off into captivity? which is, is, is not a small miracle, right? Uh, we've talked about before how God even promising that David's line will never leave the throne basically ensures that there's always going to be a male offspring of the line of David, which is phenomenal. I mean, that, you know, that's rare, 
be able to guarantee that, you know, obviously. So that's a miracle in and of itself, but then they're going to go into captivity. Well, how is the line going to be maintained when they're there in the midst of a pagan nation where they're going to be even tempted probably to intermarry and things like that? How is that line going to be maintained? And so all kinds of questions are going into this swirling around these texts that we're reading as we get to the end of, of 2 Kings. Remember, Ammon takes over from Manasseh. That's Manasseh's son. And uh, he basically took all of the repentance of Manasseh and just turned it upside down. Uh, forget all of that. All the good stuff Daddy did right before he died, he was going crazy. And so we're just going to go right back to idolatry. So he reigns only two years, and he leads all the nation right back into idolatry. Now, why is it that it takes such a long time to lead the reform of positive change, tear down the idols, tear down the false sanctuaries and the high places and all those kinds of things, but it takes not that long to go right back into idolatry. Right? You ever notice, you notice that? Like these, these wicked kings, they reign here at the end for just a couple of years, and the people go right back into idolatry. It's like, like nothing happened before, right? So, and you're going to see that in crazily tonight. But, so Ammon takes over, he turns everything right back to wickedness, but then his son Josiah comes back on the throne, that's what we're in the middle of, Josiah comes back on the throne and he starts a reformation. He takes the throne at the age of eight years old, by the time he's 16 years old, he turns his heart to the Lord, he wants to do everything to purge all of the vestiges of paganism that were there from his dad. And, and obviously during this Reformation, they, they start rebuilding the temple because the temple had fallen into disrepair, as it often does. You take in money as a wicked king, the last thing you're going to think to do is repair the temple because who cares? Uh, you're going to restore high places and things like that, and you're going to spend money elsewhere. And so uh, Josiah begins temple reform, and in the process of reforming the temple and rebuilding and, and repairing and all those kinds of things, they find the law. And they read the law, and Josiah is cut to the heart and realizes, oh no, there's so many things that we haven't done. And so he comes together with all of the leaders of Judah, and they have a covenant renewal ceremony where he basically says, look, I'm committed to following the law as closely as possible. Are you committed with me? And all of them affirm their commitment with Josiah to the following of the law. And then we get to tonight. How far did that actually go? How far did the, the restoration, the reformation, actually go into the life of Israel? Well, it, it started off with a bang, all right? It started off with a Passover feast that was unlike any in history. The author of 2 Kings is going to tell us that there's never been a feast quite like this one. You have the passage from First Chronicle or Second Chronicles, which is chapter thirty-five, verses one to nineteen. It is rather lengthy. I'm going to opt for the more abbreviated version, which is in Second Kings twenty-three, twenty-one to twenty-five, and we can read there. And the king commanded all the people, "Keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant." For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel, or during all the days of the kings of Israel, or the kings of Judah. 
But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book of Hilkiah, the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after. Now, I want, I want you to think about this for just a second. Do you remember uh, some significance between a king of Israel and mediums and necromancers? Does it jog your memory to any king in particular? Anyone? Anyone? Which one, Charlie? Saul, number one, right out of the gate. Remember Saul consulted the witch at Endor, loved the mediums and necromancers secretly, and here we have, uh, we have the author of 2 Kings calling us all the way back to the days of the judges. The author of Chronicles will even call us all the way back to the days of Samuel, which obviously throws us into the mediums and necromancers. We immediately get thrown into that image of Saul consulting the witch at Endor. And we're here saying Josiah was radically different than all of that, everything that came before him which brings to mind then the king that follows Saul, who was completely opposite of Saul and who sought the Lord with all his heart, which is what the author of 2 Kings then brings up, right? So what do we have in our mind now for Josiah, who is leading this reform throughout all of the land? This is David, right? David is on the throne. This is David part two. Now, why is that important? Well, because we know on the horizon is Babylon. What happens then if the king turns the hearts of the people through his leadership back to the Lord and they begin seeking the Lord with all their heart, begin worshiping him truly, begin putting away all the mediums and necromancers and tearing down the high places and restoring worship into the land? What's going to happen? What do you think might happen? What would you be encouraged? You would think, hey, there's a potential here that this whole threat from Babylon might not come about. Yeah? Isn't that, isn't that, there's, some, there's a little bit of hope brimming there. We're going to find out, no. <laughs> Babylon's coming. And Babylon's only been delayed for Josiah. He was told that by a prophet. Hey, look, or by a prophetess, actually. Hey, look, you're, you're, you're not going to die from Babylon, or at least it's not going to be the Babylonian threat that's going to take you. I'll do that after you're dead. But God is going to bring that threat. But here we see people getting on board with this. So look at the extent of all the things that, that are done. We've got, and I'll probably go back to Second Chronicles here in just a second so we can see some of this. But uh, the, the people uh, started obeying the ceremonial code in the preparation for this uh, Passover feast. The Ark of the Covenant was, uh, was, uh, was put in the right place. Uh, it was put back in the temple, and the priest didn't have to just carry it around all the time. Look at um, the passage in Second Chronicles 35. Look at uh, verse 7. Um, so we have the ark put in for ritual sacrifice back in the temple. Look at verse 7. Uh, Josiah contributed to the lay people as Passover offerings for all who were present, lambs and young goats, 
from the flock to the number of 30,000 and 3,000 bulls there were from the king's possession, and his officials contributed willingly to the people, to the priests, and to the Levites, Hilkiah, Zechariah, and Jehiel. The chief officers of the house of God gave to the priests for the Passover offerings 2,600 Passover lambs and 300 bulls. Uh, Conaniah also, and Shemaniah, and Nathaniel, uh, his brothers and, and Hashbai and a whole bunch of other people and Leah's Passover offerings, 5,000 lambs and young goats and 500 bulls. And so this is a, a government stimulus package right here, right? We're going to celebrate the, the, the Passover feast and a lot of the rich government officials who have probably honestly gotten rich off the backs of the people have, are going to contribute a lot of the supply for the the. Passover feast to a lot of the lay people who apparently cannot afford uh, to do this. So basically the, the, the understanding is from top down to bottom everybody's involved in this. People, churches will often say when we take kids to camp or things like that don't let money be an obstacle. Like we, we want it, we want, that's kind of what's going on here. We're going top to bottom and don't let poverty stand in your way. You're going to celebrate with us. A whole land is brought into this celebration including Sheep and goats and cattle is a good old-fashioned barbecue. All right. So when everything was ready, <clears throat> what did they do? They sprinkled, they, they slaughtered all the animals, and the blood was sprinkled as it's prescribed in the Mosaic regulations. And the reason that the author points this out in Second Chronicles is because it's very important that what Josiah was leading them to do was by the letter of the law. They've just had a covenant renewal ceremony, and Josiah and the author is making you aware that everything they did was specifically to the letter of the law. And then obviously, finally, we get the laity from Samaria, uh, as well as Judah, bears witness in their worship um, to the redemptive grace of God that He has delivered them. Um, so you've got singers... Everybody is coming together for this worship service. And look, this is really important because everything that we're seeing in this Passover, in this Reformation process that Josiah is leading, gives us all the indications that the people have turned. Josiah has done it. They've discovered the law, he's read it, everybody's been convicted. He's led them in this covenant renewal. We can do it, just like in the days of Joshua. We're going to follow. And, and it seems like from the beginning to the end, you've got everybody celebrating. They slaughter, in verse 11, they slaughtered the Passover lamb. The priest threw the blood that they received from the Levites. It, uh, it flayed the sacrifices. They sat aside the burnt offerings that they might distribute them according to the groupings of the fathers, the houses of the lay people to offer to the Lord as it is written in the book of Moses. And so they did with the bulls. They roasted it. They put it. They did all of the things that they're supposed to do. Kept the fat parts, all those kinds of things. They separated out. The singers joined in. And everything looks like it's going swimmingly. And our thought might lead us to, hey, this is different. This is a different kind of reform. There is certainly the appearance of holiness on the faces of the people. And that's an encouraging sign. So we can celebrate that. That's awesome. Won't last long. But, hey, you know, there's hope nonetheless. So even all this wasn't enough to stave off the judgment of God 
the, both the repentance and the reformation from the divine viewpoint were inadequate because both were only superficial. Look at 2 Kings 23, 26-27. Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of His great wrath by which His anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight, as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, My name shall be there. Um, so the Lord is steadfast. In his anger. Imagine just for a second the desperate situation that's taking place right here. We find in the scriptures time and time again, it reminds us that the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, quick to forgive even. And we've reached a point with the ever patient, holy God that Israel is going to suffer his wrath and there's really nothing they can do about it. Josiah is authentic. His heart is bent towards the Lord. And you can see that by his outward conformity. He conforms to the law because he truly believes in his heart this is what honors the Lord. But the people, it seems will conform to whatever the king wants them to do on the outside. But the heart remains unchanged. And this is precisely the problem. It, yeah, James says God knows the heart. And that, that's exactly it. That's what's been going on from the beginning. By the way, that still goes on today. And there, there are certain parallels, for sure, that we can draw between this and worship in a Christian church. How easy is it, maybe even much easier now than it even used to be, to just put on your Sunday best and come and sit down in the pews. And yet, the inside of the heart remains unchanged. The heart remains unconvicted, unstirred, unmotivated, and there's no repentance to be had afterwards. Yet everyone assumes about you that you are a Christian. There's a huge problem inside churches, ours is no, no exception, where we, we see our mission field as out there. That's not true. Your mission field is also in here to each other. Because the person sitting next to you, your job is to help confirm their faith. How do you do that? Well, when you see sin... You call it out for what it is. When they remain in unrepentance, you bring two or three more. Does this sound familiar? When they remain unrepentant, you bring the church. Jesus' message in Matthew 18 is very clear that your job as a church body, led first and foremost, he's telling the disciples in Matthew 18, led by the elders of the church, but your job as a church body is to confirm the faith of the person sitting next to you. Not only by your calling out sin, but also by your encouragement. 
The reason that the author of Hebrews says that we come together and we worship and we sing praises, and Paul in Colossians affirms the same thing. The reason we sing is not just to the Lord. We actually sing to the people around us. As you sing the gospel message, you're reminding the people around you what you believe about the gospel message. Remember in 1 Corinthians, where Paul, I go through it every time we do the Lord's Supper, that you taking the Lord's Supper is a sign of affirmation to the people sitting around you that you still believe this, that you still need the grace of God. So your very presence in this room, especially on Sunday morning, but Wednesday night too, but especially on Sunday morning, singing, praying, reading Scripture together, listening to sermons, responding to the people sitting next to you, talking, having fellowship with them too, all of those things are part of the tools that the Lord has given to you to help confirm the faith of the people sitting next to you. They're your primary, you might say, mission field. That bolsters worship to the Lord as our faith grows more and more authentic. Does that make sense? You tracking with me? Okay. So, we have a huge problem because Josiah seems to be legitimate and his heart and his actions seem to match the people, it seems, are, are not and that will not stir the Lord. The Lord is dead set. They are going to uh, face his wrath. He's not going to forgive them. Um, so then we get to 609. So Jos- uh, Josiah's last year on the throne. What's that? Oh, it skipped a nut. It skipped two, didn't it? All right, good deal. Okay, 609. Um, the name of the Assyrian king does not matter, but uh, he was Asher Ubalit, the second, if you have to know, uh, of Assyria. He's under attack by the Babylonians. You have to remember, so we're talking just political conflict going on. This is all out east of Israel. You got Babylon, who wants to get out from under the thumb of Assyria. In fact, pretty much all the kingdoms do want to get out from under the thumb of Assyria. And so Babylon is, is really going at it. Nebuchadnezzar's coming up through the ranks of Babylon, and they're ready to start kind of usurping uh, uh, Assyria. And Assyria needs some help. And so they put out a message all the way over to Egypt. Hey, Pharaoh Necho, bring your armies and come help us, because Babylon is giving us fits over here, and we could really use your help. And so Pharaoh Necho, as a loyal uh, cohort of Assyria, says, all right, I'm coming. So he packs up his things, and he starts heading out east to defend Assyria against Babylon. Well, that's a problem for Israel, because, or especially Judah, because Judah is kind of wanting, of the skirmishes that are going on out east, Judah's kind of wanting Babylon to win. Because uh, the, the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Right? Is kind of how the saying goes, right? And so, you know, you know uh, Babylon is to be feared, but Assyria is an immediate threat. And so anybody that's taking care of Assyria is good with me. Plus, there's been a, we've seen over the last few years, going all the way back to Hezekiah, there's kind of been an affinity from the kings of Judah toward the people of Babylon. 
In fact, Hezekiah's own bringing Babylon in and showing them all the treasures of the temple, here's what we can do with you, we're, we're a good, faithful money partner, uh, causes Isaiah to say, you're a fool, and Babylon is going to destroy this place, and they're going to haul everybody off, including all the money you showed them, right? So, nevertheless, Judah and Josiah in particular kind of want Babylon to win, and so when Pharaoh Necho goes up through Israel, heading out east to go towards the fight, the skirmish, Josiah uses that as an opportunity to sort of intervene and stop him. Now, he probably knows he can't stop him, but he might be able to delay him long enough that Babylon might be able to turn over Assyria. So, he does this, right? Well, uh, he's loyal to the Babylonians, he learns of Necho's plans, he intercepts the Egyptians, the Egyptians' troops, and he's hope at least to impede their progress to Haran, which is where they're going. And he's actually warned by God not to do this. Let's look. I want to read both of them. 2 Kings uh, 23 and then 2 Chronicles. 2 Kings 23, 29 to 30. In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria, to the river of the Euphrates. King Josiah went to meet him, and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo as soon as he saw him. And his servants carried him dead in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him made him king in his father's place. But let's, let's look at the Second Chronicles because the author of Second Kings just makes it like a really quick tale. And the Second Chronicles tells you a little bit more details. All right, verse 20 of Second Chronicles 35. After all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, went up to fight at Carchemish on the Euphrates. And Josiah went out to meet him, but he sent envoys to him, saying, What have we to do with each other, king of Judah? I'm not coming against you this day, but against the house with which I am at war. And God has commanded me to hurry. See, supposing God, who is with me, lest he destroy you. Nevertheless, Judah did not turn, uh, Josiah did not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to fight with him. He did not listen to the words of Necho uh, from the mouth of God, but came to fight in the plain of Megiddo. So who is, who is speaking through Pharaoh Necho? God himself. He's telling him, don't do it, Josiah. You're going to die. Um, he did not listen uh, in verse 23. And the archers shot King Josiah. And the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I'm badly wounded. So his servants took him out of the chariot and carried him in his second chariot and brought him to Jerusalem. And he died and was buried in the tombs of his fathers. All Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Jeremiah also uttered a lament for Josiah. And all the singing men and singing women have spoken of Josiah in their laments to this day. They made these a rule in Israel. Uh, behold, they are written in the laments. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his good deeds according to what was written in the law of the Lord and his acts, first and last, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and of Judah. Um, we're going to spend some more time in the future in Jeremiah. A lot of prophets, a lot of prophets we've got to go through, you know, all and around this time. And Jeremiah in, in particular is one that laments the death of Josiah, rightly so, because uh, he is a righteous person, and what we see, what we found time and again, is that when you see a king like Josiah, 
who turns his heart to the Lord, you know, is, is responding in faithfulness in all that he does and all that he says, and truly in his heart, his heart is inclined toward the Lord, he's still human. And this is precisely the issue, right? Is that, that we see this righteous king living righteously, and yet he's not the one we need, right? We always have hope. Hey, this is like David. Not quite. And, and, and all of them just seem to fall just a little short because they, they are human, they are short-sighted, they are sinful. They have Maxwell. <laughs> uh, God, God does pick and choose His messengers, doesn't He? Uh, and we might speculate endlessly on why did God choose Necho instead of maybe a prophet in Judah to come and tell him? Yeah. Why, why, why would Josiah believe Necho? Um, I, I'm reminded, and it, again, we could speculate forever on why this is the case. However, you know, I'm, I'm kind of reminded of, uh, uh, of just various passages in the Scripture. It's appointed man wants to die, you know. And uh, I have to kind of think about that word appointed. And what, what does that actually mean? Does it mean just generally you're going to die one day? Or does it mean m- moment? hour, second, day, year, month. Uh, I have to think the latter is, is the appointment. Josiah is appointed to die. Um, we're reminded in uh, the story of the Exodus that Moses goes in to tell Pharaoh, let his, let his people go. God tells Moses before he even sends him in, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he won't do it because he's going to show his power. And, and a lot of people, when they, when they, we talked about this long time, long time back, but a, a lot of people, when they read that, they, they think to themselves, it took God ten plagues to convince Pharaoh to let his people go. And that's absolutely not what's happening in that passage, in the, the whole story. What's happening in the whole story is he's hardening his heart so that he won't let him go, so that he can show his power. And when we were back there, we went systematically through the ten plagues and talked about them, spent ten consecutive Wednesdays on those plagues, and showed how each one of them is an assault against one of the Egyptian gods, one of the prominent Egyptian gods, right? And so you have to wonder, when it comes to a passage like this, uh, Pharaoh Necho speaking, and the author of Chronicles actually says, he was, God was speaking through Necho, and Josiah didn't recognize it, that potentially that was on purpose. That's hard for us to kind of wrap our minds around sometimes, I think. But... It seems as though if our understanding, our worldview of God is informed by the rest of the Bible, then we have to think God hardens and softens hearts. And that's what he does. And Josiah, marching off to his death, ushering in then the decline of Judah and the ultimate exile of Judah, has to be intentional. You know? So, it's difficult, I think, but that's the best I got. All right. Uh, Yeah. Uh, so, I have to be careful here because I, I don't, I can't recall a passage in Scripture that's going to tell me that exactly. But I'd have to say that based on the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 38 39, hey, this is, it's Babylon that you need to fear. That either Josiah was ignorant of that or 
he ignored it. You know? And one, I think, is voluntary and, you know, a refutation of God, which doesn't seem like the character of Josiah. The other would say he was just ignorant that Babylon was the one that he needed to watch. Um, I, I, I'm inclined to believe the latter, that he was ignorant of w- what the threat on the horizon, and he was thinking only in the short term. And, and it's clear that he was thinking only in the short term, even in the battle with Pharaoh right? He's going to go out into battle, he's going to be in, maybe he thinks, I'm going to be invincible, or I don't know what he thinks. But it's clear that he's got some short-sighted tendencies in that, in that regard. So I would say, is it not, that he's not trusting God? It, it's possible that he was ignorant of what, what the real threat was on the horizon, which would be Babylon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Iran-Contra and all, all the stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of parallels to modern warfare. You see this happen from time to time. Tend to, tends to be the, you arm the insurgents, and then the insurgents come back to bite you in the rear end later on. You know, I mean, it's, it's very, I guess, very similar kind of thing. And that's essentially what Isaiah points out in Isaiah 38 is to, to Hezekiah. Look, hey, his great-great-great-grandfather. You know, hey, you, Babylon is the one that's going to kill you, and you've just kind of let them in, basically. And, uh, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend only for so long until they become your enemy, you know, and then, and then you're up a creek. So, all right, well, let's, let's move through this here. Um, so we get to a, a rapid, and when I say rapid, I mean three kings in ten years rapid, rapid succession of, of kings starting with the death of Josiah. But see, here's the deal is that the the death of Josiah actually reveals a great deal about the shallowness of the repentance of the people. So if you thought for a second, God, you're being harsh. You're not going to forgive them? I mean, they seem to be repentant. Uh, No. Taking away Josiah, he was the only thing that was redeemable about the country, it appears. They are plunged back into evil almost overnight. Um, Josiah's successor was his son Jehoahaz. He's an evil king. He reigns only three months, and he throws the whole nation back into uh, wickedness in three months. Look at 2 Kings 23, 31-34. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, and the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all his fathers had done. And Pharaoh Necho put him in bonds at Riblah in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem, and laid on the land tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in his place, uh, in the place of Josiah his father, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoahaz away, and he came to Egypt and died there. So, uh, immediately, he's evil, leads the nation into evil practices. In three months, Necho comes in and removes him off the, off the scene. And of course, Necho puts on the land of Judah a tribute, where they have to pay tribute to the nation of Israel to demonstrate Israel's sovereignty. But not only did he extract tribute from Israel... He put Eliakim on the throne, changed his name to Jehoiakim. That also, when you, when you rename an adult, that, <laughs> that, 
that shows your sovereignty. <laughs> you know, when you say, uh, I don't like your name, I'm going to change it. <laughs> Today you're Eric. Um, you know, that, that tends to show <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> show your sovereignty. Okay, so that, that little uh, debt that they owe to Egypt is going to be a, a big, actually a quite a big deal, because Jehoiakim is on the throne, and you've just had your whole nation at war, You've just lost uh, two kings in the same year. Within, within, within one quarter of the year, you lost two kings. Um, money is, well, how shall we say, money is tight at this point. How are you going to pay tribute? What is your only choice as king? Well, it's to increase the taxation. So he began to tax his people. Now, this is going to turn out not to be very popular, as you can imagine. Look at 2 Kings 23, 35. And Jehoiakim gave the silver and gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land to give the money according to the command of Pharaoh. He, extracted, he exacted the silver and gold of the people of the land from everyone according to his assessment to give it to Pharaoh Necho. Now, here's the big problem with this. First of all, there's the big debt on the land, and so when the debt is assumed by the government, then people are taxed. Can I get an amen from somebody? Uh, it's like, this is like modern-day fiscal policy right here. Uh, but second, that I think is really important to understand is that, that Jehoiakim is actually building for himself palaces at the time, and he's refusing to pay. The author of Second Chronicles tells us he's refusing to pay the people that build his palaces. So he's, and, and Jeremiah actually points this out as one uh, condemnation against Jehoiakim is that you have extracted work and service from poor people and you have refused to pay them and yet you live in this palace of splendor. And so how does he then get money for Egypt? Well, he doesn't take it from his own coffers. He takes it from the people. And so he, he not, he's basically double dipping into the people. He's, he's making them work for free and then he's also pulling the money out from them. Um, so Twice he's, he's, he's doing this to them. So he's getting all this. He's increasing taxation so that he can pay. But then Nebuchadnezzar, who is the commander of the armies, uh, has to go back. He, 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 Babylon is coming in. They're starting to kind of kick up a fuss. And Nebuchadnezzar is crowned king of, of Babylon. And in 605, he turns his attention all the way to Israel. But, but in order to get to Israel, he's got to go through Egypt. When there is a, a, a country extracting tribute from another lesser country, they, the, the people receiving the money from Israel don't take kindly to somebody else coming in and taking Israel for themselves, right? So Babylon has to come in and actually do battle with Egypt first, and so they've got to kill Egypt. Well, in 605, they do that, and, and Nebuchadnezzar turns his attention uh, all the way up to, uh, to, to Israel. And Jehoiakim kind of says, look, Nebuchadnezzar, we're not going to pay you what you, what you think you're worth. We're going we're gonna to stop. And, well, Babylon, who's now beginning to extract tribute from Israel, doesn't like that at all either. And so when they march up to do battle against them, ne uh, Jehoiakim dies conveniently. And so he's out of the picture he died just before Nebuchadnezzar begins his second campaign. The thing that I want you to understand 
about Babylon coming into Judah is it doesn't happen instantaneously. When, when Assyria came into the northern kingdom, it happened in 722 B.C., right? One, basically one, it was like a three-year-long battle, but they, they came in, they took them, 722, uh, Samaria falls, and they take them off to Assyria. That's not what happens with Babylon. First, Nebuchadnezzar comes in in 605, has a little skirmish, and he hauls people off into captivity. And that, again, like I said, that takes place in 605. This is actually where we see Daniel and his friends being hauled off into captivity is during that first campaign. All right, so look at um, Daniel 1, 1 to 7. Uh, in the third year, well, I'll just read probably the first few verses here. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. This is the first campaign in 605. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, uh, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the, loyal, of the royal family and of no, nobility, youths with, without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding and learning and, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were educated for three years, and at the end of the time, they were, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them new names. Uh, Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Yorshak. Mishael, he called Mashak. And Azariah, he called a bungalow. Um, uh, so, uh, Yorshak, Mashak, and a bungalow, uh, and Daniel, they all get hauled off, and obviously the king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, has an idea. He's going to reprogram the people that come in. There's a good brainwashing that's going to take place, and they're going to stand, and, and these are, hey, there's bright people over there. Let's, let's see if we can use them. They're of nobility. They can hang out here. We'll give them all the finest foods, and they'll eat from the king's table, and they'll love it, and we'll reprogram them, and hey, it'll be hunky-dory for, for Babylon. Uh, it doesn't turn out that way necessarily for Nebuchadnezzar. But so the first campaign comes in in 605, and it's during that time that, um, that the, the king starts to give tribute to Babylon and then somewhere along the way decides not to. And the second campaign begins in 597. So Nebuchadnezzar comes back into the land and decides, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this over. So he begins a second campaign in 597. Um, and it's right before that campaign that, uh, that uh, Jehoiakim dies, and the newly crowned Jehoiakim, his son, that's not at all confusing, Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, his son, takes over the throne and begins to reign. He reigns for all of three months until he's hauled off into captivity. So, not long at all until he's hauled off. Now, this is the, in the grand scheme of things, this is what we're working down towards. And what, what I think we need to kind of take from this rapid succession of decline. This is the second campaign. Next week we're going to talk about the third campaign that Babylon finally just kills off Jerusalem and hauls people off into captivity, which happens in 586. That's Jeremiah's lamentation. That's, you know, that's the whole, the whole it's all over at that point, essentially. 
What we're seeing, though, is that there is Jerusalem, Judah, the people of, of, of God, so to speak, are quick to conform the outside, and yet the inside remains unchanged. And what has been true from the beginning, and we see this, this point, Jeremiah is actually going to hammer home to all of the people who are being hauled off into captivity. Outside is of no consequence. That's not what he's looking at. And precisely the problem with Israel is that their heart remains hard, which is why the new covenant comes along. That's the purpose of the new covenant. It, it, God tells them over and over again, he is past the point of forgiveness. Look at 2 Kings uh, 24, 3-4, which is the last passage. I want you to see this. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh. Think about that for just a second. We're filtering this whole thing through what the author of 2 Kings is telling us. That all of this fall is coming about at the command of the Lord. And the specific purpose is to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he, fulfilled, uh, he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. There was nothing that Israel could do, or Judah could do at this point. The Lord was not going to pardon. This was sin for which they had to be punished. But this is precisely why Jeremiah hammers on the new covenant and the purpose of the new covenant. And why it's really important that we understand what Jesus is actually giving to us in the new covenant. Jeremiah tells us that the new covenant, the way it's going to work, is that the Lord is going to reach into the heart of His people. He's going to take out the heart of stone, and He's going to put in a heart of flesh. This is the problem that we're seeing right now with Judah, is that they've got a heart of stone, and they'll conform the outside all day long. They have no problem worshiping whatever God the king wants us to worship, and that's fine, or at least on the outside. What, what, what practices do you want us to conform to? The problem is always and will always be the inside. And so Jeremiah says, look, this is what's going to happen in the new covenant. God is going to reach into the chest of his people. He's going to remove the heart of stone and he's going to put in a heart of flesh. He has to do it. That's the only one that can. He has to do the exchange. And once he does the exchange, then the actions and the outward conformity follow after that. So it's, the reason why that's so important is we have to understand how salvation actually works in the new covenant. What happens when someone is saved? Is it that they go into their room and they pray in their closet for the Lord to come into their heart? No! The Lord has to come in first before they can ever do anything like that. Otherwise, they remain exactly like Judah. There's no difference. So for God to actually move in someone's life, what He's doing when someone opens their eyes to salvation, that means that God has come into their life, pulled out the heart of stone, and put in a heart of flesh. You understand? God moves first. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following after the ways of the world. But God made us alive. It's God that does the action. It's God that makes his, his people alive. 
And that's what he promises to them in the new covenant. Because he's past the point of forgiveness. You can't, you can't now at this point come to the Lord and say, I'm sorry, Judah, you're going into punishment. Because God, like Josiah, is also doing his own reform. He's going to correct his people and he's going to help them understand. You have to suffer for your sin. But then it also tells us a couple other things too, I think. Or at least one other thing. That we, we kind of live in a, in a world that wants to select a portion of Jesus to read and to follow and then ignore the rest of it. Right? I like hippie Jesus. I like Jesus that's, you know, kind, love your neighbor, and then sort of moves on. I, 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 like, I like the Jesus that says, look, don't judge other people. I like that one. Let me throw that one out there. Don't judge me. Oh, yeah. I like all those things. But the Jesus in Revelation, you can have him. I don't, I don't want that one. And then, what are they left to do but take that Jesus out of the New Testament and separate him completely away from the God of the Old Testament? Ah, the God in the Old Testament, well, he's kind of stodgy, right? He's, he's mean-spirited, and I don't like that one. And so, we separate ourselves, or as one pastor put it, puts it, unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament because... We're really concerned about that kind of depiction of God. But you understand, the Old Testament is our foundational understanding for how God deals with sin. If we leave that, if we unhitch ourselves from that, we have no concept of why Jesus is even dying. It makes no sense. When I say Jesus suffers the wrath of God, you have to be left with, what, 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 I don't have a category for the wrath of God. I can't imagine God, God being all loving, sending someone to hell. Have you read the Old Testament? He's beyond the point of forgiveness, and he's putting his people in slavery and says, look, a lot of you are going to die there, but look for what's best in Babylon. It helps us to understand who God actually is. And we don't need to be scared of that. This is who God actually is. But, but the beauty of the new covenant is that he provided the salvation. You get that? The salvation that Josiah provided to the people only postponed the judgment. The salvation that David or Solomon provided the people by being somewhat righteous of a king only postponed the judgment. But Jesus, the king in David's line, took the judgment, eradicated the judgment, completed, fulfilled the judgment. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Precisely because that king actually accomplished it. Questions? So we share, yeah. Yes, is there a question? <laughs> Do we share the gospel? Yes, we share the gospel. Amen. Amen, sister. All right. Yeah, so the, that's the beauty of the sharing of the gospel, is that the, the, Paul, Paul says, look, how will they believe unless they are told, right? So what, what he 
points out belief comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, is that your sharing of the gospel is the instrument that God uses to change the heart. That, that's, that's the way that he comes into the life of his people, is, is through the message of the gospel. And why that? Well, because that's why he wanted to do it. I, I mean, that's the, the part of the answer, but the other is, at least Paul, I think, points out in 1 Corinthians that to just demonstrate that the, the foolishness of, of man and the wisdom of the Lord is that you think you're wise, I'm going to ordain that the most ridiculous means possible brings about the salvation of my people. The preaching of the gospel, of the good news. It wakes people up to salvation, and, and therein is the exchange yeah, where they cry out in repentance. Yeah, Timothy. Precisely. Precisely. Yeah. Precisely. You know, uh, so Timothy says, uh, just say this for people that listen, they always tell me, hey, can you repeat the question or whatever, but you, Timothy said that, that when, we, when we preach, then we need to pray because unless God moves, then nothing's going to change and that we would have wisdom to know which, which part of the gospel to share or how to share it or, or way, the way it should be oriented so that they, can, they understand. And, and absolutely, all of those things are true. Like, we, um, you know, we have to um, not only undergo, you know, missions and sharing the gospel personally with people, but also undergird all of that with prayer because unless the Lord moves in the per this person's life, nothing's going to change. And I can I preach till I'm blue in the face. Absolutely. And, and you know, I mean, we're, we're obviously preparing, and we're, we're going to be preparing soon uh, to be meeting once a week uh, for a prayer meeting here. A lot of that is going to be praying, specifically in the morning, for the lost and for our mission in this city to actually go out to people, meet them on their doorstep, and share the gospel with them praying that people will come to faith. And we have to really have a category for that as a church to meet together just to pray. And, um, you know, precisely for the reason that Timothy underscores. It's, it's tremendously important. But it also removes a lot of stress from you, right? <laughs> it's, there's the casting of the anxiety on the Lord is to go, you know, I'm going to show up on a doorstep and I'm just going to be faithful and or I'm going to open my mouth in the barbershop or in the wherever, and I'm just going to be faithful, and the Lord will do with it whatever he will. It may choose to not let it do anything, or it may change somebody's life. I have no idea, but I can rest easy in that and share the gospel knowing that the Lord takes care of all those things. James. Yeah. Right. Right. And, it, and it's also important in a, at where I see one thing about Wednesday night, Sunday morning in building blocks and in, in, in church is um, that what we present to people is the actual God of the Bible. And that we're not afraid of that. And because you, you're going to get questions about Old Testament God. Tell me about that. What's going on there? And and you're going to be, you, you get put in those awkward positions, which is sometimes the reason we don't share, is because we're scared of those kinds of questions. 
You don't have to be scared of what's in the Bible. If it's there, just, I mean, what, what's the problem? I'm offering you salvation from that, right? So, yes, this is God dealing with sin, and that's what I'm telling you is the problem. And, but, but here is the, you know, way of escape. Here is the salvation from the Lord. Go ahead, go ahead, Kirsten. Seventy years. Six oh five. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, the only thing that we know was that he was young, so he would probably have been a child when Josiah died. So, I mean, you know, I probably would put him born in, in the teens, six, six teens. Right, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Faithfulness, faithfulness to God is supernatural, not natural. So, and that's true. That's especially true in Dan Daniel, uh, your shack, my shack, and a bungalow. Let's uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for an opportunity to read your word, to talk about your word, see what's in there, to discover it that we may be better equipped just knowing who you are and how you've worked throughout history, that we might be able to rightly understand the way you've revealed yourself in your word and, and heed warnings that are there um, of, of how you deal with sin, that sin is serious, that we should deal with it in our own life, that we should confess it, and, and also that it would lead us uh, to a celebration of the fact that in the new covenant we have Christ on our behalf dying, not Josiah, not David, not Solomon, but we have Jesus uh, on our behalf, uh, absorbing your wrath that we may have now no condemnation. Uh, what a tremendous thing that is and, and a privilege that we have that, um, that, that we should share with others. So we pray for our own evangelistic efforts um, as a church body, corporately, as individuals, uh, whether we're in the office or in the barber chair or at the grocery store or wherever we might encounter someone who, who is lost, that we might be able to just share and trust that, that you'll open doorways here and that, that you'll uh, provide the exchange of the old heart for the new, that you'll open the eyes to salvation. That, uh, that, and we pray that you would do that, that you would move in front of us um, into the lives of people, preparing them for the message of the gospel that we might give and give us the boldness to share, that we might be confident, knowing that we don't know everything and we're never going to know everything, but that we might be able to share, knowing that you'll, you'll take care of everything, that everything that we need will be given to us uh, by, by you. And, um, and may we see that provision take place right in front of our eyes. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.